All right. Well, guess we got better, not, nothing better to do than talk about the scriptures for the next few hours, right? So. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, good afternoon. Is it afternoon yet? I don't think it's even afternoon yet. Still technically morning. Welcome to Sharit uh, Yisrael, Remnant of Israel Messianic Synagogue. Uh, today we're, uh, we're concluding our uh, new members class discussion, uh, Principia Theologia. This will be actually both parts five and six since, uh, since I have reason to, to leave. We're going we're gonna to smash uh, the last two parts of it together. So uh, welcome. Um, for those of you who are relatively new and considering membership, I, I hope that this, uh, this series has been beneficial for you. Um, it is, uh, it's supposed to be a, a very basic um, uh, explanation of the, the things that we believe, the, the faith, right? the, the faith that was uh, once and for all delivered to the saints. Uh, we think that we've doctrinally got it uh, pretty much right. If, if we thought we were wrong, we'd change. So uh, that's what we're doing, and uh, today we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Uh, before I start, I, I want to kind of encourage you, uh, in, encourage you by, by means of telling you that, uh, that I made a mistake earlier. A mistake, that's a polite way of saying I sinned. I, I was harsh with someone. And uh, um, harsh in a way that, that required, um, you know, upon introspection, required a, uh, a heartfelt apology. This person was patient and gracious and displayed the fruits of the Spirit. Now, a lot of you guys know me. You know that I am, I'm very academic. I'm very intellectual. And I've said numerous times that I'm not someone who feels the movement of the Spirit. That doesn't mean I don't believe that the Spirit moves. I very much do. And let me explain why I'm saying that, because in the same way that I don't need to see the electric current that is flowing through the circuits and causing the filaments and these lights to glow and causing the electric motor to spin these fans and Baruch Hashem, causing the uh, heat pump to jettison all the heat outside that we're making, right? Just, just because I don't see those things and I, I don't need to feel them, I can academically know exactly how those things are working and know that they're working properly, right? So in the same way, when, when I was uh, earlier, and the, the rest of the context doesn't really matter, but I was harsh to another member of the body of Christ, and... When I was doing that, right after that, um, because this person was, was gracious to me, I don't think that people are naturally gracious. I don't think they're naturally patient. I think that the Spirit makes them do that. I also don't think that people naturally look in themselves and say, yeah, I did something wrong, I need to repent of that. I think that's also a work of the Spirit. So the Spirit was moving in this case, despite my sin, that's how God works. He, he looks at our sin, and despite that sin, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And so my encouragement to you is 
to, to, do, to do what you can in your lives to express the fruits of the Spirit and to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit in other people. Right? You don't need to see the Spirit moving to see the fruits of the Spirit and enjoy that in other people. Okay, so, you know, finally, you know, if I may, right, I'm, I'm an elder in this synagogue to some extent, and, and to a very limited extent, yes, I get to tell you what to do. So here it is, I'm telling you, here's, here's a matter of halakha in this synagogue, okay? Seek the fruits of the Spirit in yourself and in other people, okay? See, you know, be, be open to the restorative work of the Spirit. Don't, you know, learn from my mistakes, okay? I promise you, you don't need to go make your own mistakes, <laughs> all right? Please learn from my mistakes, right? We don't need any more mistakes, right? Let's, let's grow in righteousness. We don't need to grow in sin. We don't need to grow in experiencing sin, right? You don't need just a little bit of suicide today to know that it's a bad idea, okay? Learn from my mistakes and... Please um, be, uh, especially to people outside of our synagogue, right? Please, please seek community with those people, all right? Just because some of them eat swine's flesh and, I mean, some of them are Calvinists, so they don't have a sense of humor, right? <laughs> Just, that's not a reason to break communion with them, okay? So, and it's, you know, just, there you go. Fair enough. Please learn from my mistakes and um, uh, let, let the Spirit move. Let the Spirit do His job. And you don't need to feel the Spirit to see His, his presence and His fruits. Good enough? All right. So, that being said, it's always, it's always nice when you have to start out by saying, yeah, I, I spent this week as a sinner. All right. Um, but I also spent this week as someone redeemed by the person and the work of Christ, right? And so did you. So, so um, you know, keep that in mind. Yes, we are sinners, but we've also been redeemed, and we need to, we need to spend time rejoicing in that and letting the Spirit do His work um, to, to continue our redemption and ultimately our perfection. There's going to come a day when, you know, the, the saying that, oh, nobody's perfect, that won't be true anymore. We will be perfected by His work. Blessed be He. Amen? Okay, so Principia Theologia, the, our, our new members class. What have we covered thus far? We started out with, you know, very, very basic arguments. The, the first installment, we didn't even open this book, right? Because all of our, all of our arguments were, were based on things that didn't need to come out of this book. Agreed? We, we started saying that, that truth exists... Everyone agree with that? Truth exists? Right, and if, if, if some poor, misguided soul tells you, well, uh, there really is no truth, how do we respond to that? Yeah, is that true? That's interesting. Sounds like you just made a truth claim, right? Truth has to exist. Reality exists. Something, something has to be, right? We can see with our own eyes reality. There are things consistent with reality. We also made the argument that God exists. We made this, this argument from what we call natural theology. Right? We didn't need to open the word of God to say God is... <laughs> okay, so there's a stormtrooper sitting back here. <laughs> I just noticed that. 
put, oh, okay, put, put the hood back on so everyone can see it now. For, fortunately, I know that I'm, if you start shooting at me, I'm, I'm good to go. I'm not going to get hit. <laughs> Sorry, the, the, things that, the things that I see that you guys don't get to see because he's sitting behind you. All right, so anyway, we talked about truth. We talked about God existing. We talked then uh, about the epistemological value of the Bible, right? We can, look at the, we can look at the Bible, and the Bible seems to comport with reality. There are these various things that suggest that things that the Bible say are true, comports with reality. Really, the only question is, did God do these things? Did God say these things? Right? And, and it seems that the, the arc, the overall story of the Bible, seems to be leading in one place. Right? Then we talked about mankind. Right? What, what do we know about mankind? Okay, mankind failed. Mankind in, in, a, in a very real and in a moral way, mankind is broken. Right, mankind is also beautiful. Man is made in the image of God. We are, we are made in, in the image of God. That is, right, and that, that seem, again, that seems to comport with reality. That seems to be true because all of us have the experience of desiring things like human rights, uh, desiring, desiring love, joy, peace, patience, things of that nature. If we desire those things, why do we desire those things? If we're just ugly bags of mostly water. Anyone catch the Star Trek reference? Yeah? Oh, okay. A few Next Generation fans out there. If we're just ugly bags of mostly water, you can't explain morality. You can't explain the moral nature of what we are. Right? So yes, mankind is, is broken. Mankind is also beautiful. We're made in the image of God. Right? And our worldview tells us why mankind is beautiful, tells us why this, this morality seems to exist. There are other worldviews that we talked about. They don't seem to explain these things very well. And because they're not a good model of reality, we reject them. Seems to make sense. Okay, uh, Principia Theologia 4. We talked about two things. What were they? Very important things as far as the, as far as the faith. The faith that we believe, the faith that we practice. Two things. The person and the work of Christ, the person and the work of Messiah, right, classically called the person and the work of Christ, who was, right, and, and I understand, right, Jesus of Nazareth is alive, we'll talk about that today, but in, in historically, when he, when he entered history, who was he? Who is he now? What, what's the, the ontological nature of his person? Right, and what did he come to do? The person and the work of Christ. So who was he? Who, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, when, when you say the Son of God, what do you mean by that? Does, does that mean, or this is, this is heresy, but it's heresy that's been around for a long time. Did, did God take a human body and come down and have sex with Mary? No, that did not happen. So we're not saying the Son of God in a, in a, in a physical sense. What do we mean when we say the Son of God? Okay, so he shared, he is in, in being, yes, he is the being of God. Okay, good, right? And he became incarnate 
Why did he become incarnate? This is switching to the work of Christ. What, what did he come to do? Okay, salvation. What's that? Okay, he came to do... Right, no, that's interesting, right? Because we've, we seem to have a Godhead consisting of three persons, three centers of consciousness. These persons have perfect will, right? They don't, they don't boss each other around, but they, they do seem to submit to each other's will in this, right? Because they all share the... They have wills of their own, but because these wills are perfect, these wills are, are mirrors of each other, right? So yes, he came to do the will of the Father. What was the will of the Father? Okay, so the, the sermon for today is done. Thank you. All done. All right, that's correct. All right, important point. He did not come to teach social justice. He did not come to have an efficiently balanced tax code. He did not come to uh, show us how to be better people. Right? He might have some things to say about how we treat the poor. He might have some things to say about how we become better people. But his purpose here was to be a substitute, not an example. Right? That is the work of Christ. Okay, so the person and the work of Christ, these things are of, these things are of vital importance. Right? It is important that you understand those if you want to be a member at this synagogue, if you want to be in communion with, with the overall, uh, with the... I'm going to use a word here, with the overall invisible universal Catholic, as in universal, church, if you want to be in communion with the entire body of disciples, then this is something that you need to understand, and this is something on which we will not compromise. Okay, compromise on these points is heresy. It is outside of, of orthodox doctrine. Okay, question or discussion on... Principia Theologia 1 through 4. Okay, seeing, seeing uh, nothing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the, the work of Christ is not to make you feel good. James is 100% correct. Now, it probably should make you feel good. It, okay, and James says it does. Sometimes, okay, sometimes it you know, you're, you, it might make you feel bad that, that you necessitated this rescue mission. Okay, and that's fair too. But your feelings are... are it, it's fair to say your feelings are immaterial to, to the person in the work of Christ, right? The person in the work of Christ are objective facts, not subject to what, the way we feel about them, right? Okay. I don't know. I am pretty big. <laughs> Uh, you, 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 you threw, you lobbed that one across the plate intentionally, right? Well done, well done. Very well done. Okay, so, we've, we've reviewed everything up until now. Notice, nothing that we've said, nothing has, has required, uh, I'm going to use, this, nothing has required a leap of faith. Everything, everything in our Religion, everything in our worldview is based on fact. It is based on evidence. There are logical interpretations of these facts 
that then lead us to conclude various things that inform our worldview. Right? At no point in time have I, have I asked you, well, you know, there was this guy in the cave and he got choked out by this angelic being and, and, uh, and then uh, he, he got this, this revelation that he recited. Right? I, I haven't asked that. I haven't said that some guy went and sat under a tree and became enlightened and figured this out. No, I'm, I'm arguing with facts and I'm encouraging you to look at these facts, these things that are true and comport with reality, and make a decision based upon them. Agreed? This, this is where the academic side of, right? Uh, we've also argued that the inward witness of the spirit is epistemologically valid, right? It, it is a good answer if you say, how do, how do we know that, you know, that, that this stuff is true, that Jesus of Nazareth did indeed rise from the dead? It's a fine answer to say that the spirit is inside me and convicting me of this. That's a fine answer. That's how I can know, realize that that's a little bit different than showing other people and a lot of our arguments have been based on how we show other people because it's a new members class and we want to welcome you into the synagogue, right? Any questions on that or discussion? All right, seeing nothing, as I, I said that we were going to start Principia Theologia 5. Here we go, Principia Theologia 5, the cross, the cross. Uh, we're going to talk about um, what, what happened at the cross and uh, why, why it's important. We'll also briefly discuss the, uh, the, the exclusivity of what happened at the cross. So up to this point in time, what's the problem? What's that? Sin. Sin, Sin is the problem, right? Not, not meant to be a difficult question, not meant to be a trick question. The problem is sin. We've talked about the brokenness of, of the world. Why do, we see, you know, why do we see these natural disasters happening? It, it seems like there's, there's something inside of us that says that that's, that's not right. It shouldn't be that way. It certainly shouldn't be that way in a world that the Almighty, blessed be He, looked down upon and said it was very good. Right, so something, something's wrong. We can also see sin in us. We can, you know, at, our, at my uh, poorhouse last night, we were talking about the, the fallen nature of man. Right? Oh, mankind is just atrocious. We see all these bad things. Right? And that's true. We can't argue with that. You know, pick up a newspaper, see how, you know, read the, read the police blotter. Right? And, and just... Turn on, a, turn on a news show. It's, it's all bad news. It's news that shows how human beings are very willing to do things that are clearly immoral. Even if you, if you don't believe in the existence of the divine, you still look at that and say that's wrong. Okay, now your logic, that, that should cause a problem for you with your logic. Because if we don't owe those moral responsibilities and duties to the Almighty, blessed be he, then to whom do we owe them? If you come from the materialistic, naturalist background, if you're a, a, a pure atheist, then you can't answer that question. There is no morality. 
right? But, but we look at the world, we look at humankind, we see brokenness, we see sin, we see things that are not the way they should be. Yes, this is the problem. So what does God, blessed be he, what does he think about these moral crimes, this wrongness? What does he think about it? Question open to the floor. What, is, what does God think about this? Okay, that's true. He thinks it's bad. He, he seems to continue to love us. If he thinks it's bad, what, what does that cause in him? Sadness. Okay, what else? Anger, wrath. Okay. Oh, wait a second. But I thought God was loving why is a loving God angry at us? Yes, ma'am. Disappointment. Okay, he can't, he can't, because of his holiness, he's, he doesn't have the oneness with us that, that um, oneness might not be the good word. Communion is a better word. He doesn't have the communion with us. Okay. Sin, okay, sin does lead to death. True. That seems to, to certainly be true. What, so we heard wrath and anger. Right, but, I, but I thought he was, a, was an all-loving God. Don't, don't these things justice? That's right. That's right. If he's a good God, he should be angry at the things that he sees. Right? If he is good, right, we, we, we talk about God being good, it makes sense that the things that he sees are causing within him anger and that there is impending justice, right? If we, as a, if, if, if these sins, if these moral crimes are not brought to justice, then he isn't good. Justice, it, justice is an attribute of the good. Justice is part of the good. When wrong things are set to rights, that's good. When wrong things are allowed to continue, that's bad. That's injustice. Agreed? Not, not, a, not a huge advanced concept, but it should make sense to us. So, right? he's just, he's good, What next? He must therefore punish these moral crimes. Set them to rights. Correct the mistakes that have been made. Correct, you know, physically give, give appropriate restitution. And yes, punish the moral crimes. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a story that uh, it shows how... Um, how our, our theistic worldview deviates from, from a, a somewhat similar theistic worldview, specifically that of al-Islam, the Islamic faith. Uh, years ago, I was uh, studying, studying Arabic, studying the Arabic language, and I found a service online by which it, basically I'd go online and I'd Skype with someone for, I don't know, three hours a week, and just speak Arabic and you know, maintain my skills there. And 
So I had my first class, and this guy was somewhat interested in teaching the Arabic language, but he was very interested. He was, uh, he was a Dai, right? The, the, um, uh, the, the Arabic word Da'a means to, to offer or to present, and a Dai is a Muslim apologist, right? One who calls people to Islam, one who explains uh, the tenets of Islam, and, you know, so I want you to make a decision to say that there's only one God and Muhammad is his messenger, right? That's, that's what this guy was doing. And he was spending a lot of time, where we, we weren't speaking in Arabic, we were speaking in English, and he was telling me, well, this is why Islam is better than Christianity, because in Islam, if, if we ask God to forgive us, God just says, okay, I forgive you. Right? And, and your Christian religion is, is not like that. In your Christian religion, you ask God to forgive you, and he punishes Jesus. And that's why Islam is better than Christianity. And I thought it was a very interesting argument. I, I didn't really have my apologist hat on to, to discuss it, and I was really expecting to talk about Arabic grammar, not religion. And I, I disagree with the, the conclusion that that's why Islam is better than Christianity, but I certainly agree that that's why Islam is different than Christianity, because the things that he was saying were right. He was correct in saying that our moral crimes, right, for those of us who choose to trust, our moral crimes have been punished, and they were punished through the work of the Messiah. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I, wh what, did, what did we miss? Okay, yeah, he, he was interested. He was interested in calling me to Islam, to the Islamic faith. And what he said, his, one of his, his, his primary argument, the one that I remember, is Islam is better than Christianity. Because in Islam, you ask God to forgive you, and he forgives you. In Christianity, you ask God to forgive you, and he punishes Jesus for your sins, and then he forgives you. Why not just forgive people? It's an interesting argument. And in, in his understanding of these two worldviews, he is correct. And, and the importance of, of the correct nature of what he said is that, yes, these moral crimes that we agree are the problem. Right? The, the, the question was, what's the problem? The answer was sin. These are... You know, are, are, are these sins going to continue to be an affront to God forever and ever? No, God is just, and God is going to punish sins. So this is what happened at the cross. A sinless man who was a real human being, right, who lived a perfect life, was punished for sins that he didn't commit. These scales were balanced. There was justice. All of these sins, and when I, when I talk about these sins, I'm talking about the sins of those who trust 
in the person and the work of Christ, those who trust in Mashiach, in the things he came to do and the things he did, those sins have been punished. And I'm contrasting that to other worldviews that say, well, the, you know, those sins, they didn't really need to be punished. Yeah, they did. That's justice. That's what happened at the cross. Okay, what happened at the cross was the punishment, the, the just punishment that was a result of the divine displeasure with our sin was punished. It was punished on a man who had not sinned. Yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, so the question is, that's an excellent question, and I need to not speak Christianese. I need to speak... So, crucifixion... Crucifixion is a, is a terrible way to go. Uh, crucifixion is, you know, a person is either tied or nailed in, in a position where basically he can't breathe. So ultimately, people who are crucified usually don't die from a loss of blood or from shock. They, these people usually die because they can't breathe. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, this is the... The history, right, eyewitness testimony of what happened to the man Yeshua ben Yosef Minazareth, Jesus, thought to be the son of Joseph from Nazareth, was first of all that he was beaten severely, probably so severely that both his skin and his musculature was literally ripped off his body to the extent where you could see internal organs. He was then force-marched out of the city of Jerusalem carrying a, carrying a cross beam. He was taken to a place outside the city where criminals were executed. Right? He was, and this, this happened in, in the Roman Empire. Right? And again, all of, this, all of these things are historical. No scholar questions what I'm telling you. Scholars that are... Christian, scholars that are Jewish, scholars that are rabbinically Jewish, not, not Jewish like we're messianic, uh, scholars who are atheist, agree that these things happened, that they did indeed take place. So this beating that he received probably started him on the, on the path to dying. Um, he had... Uh, there, it's unlikely that the man had anything to eat. He didn't sleep while he was undergoing this beating. And then the, the Roman governor of the, the province at the time, because only the Romans had the authority to execute people, uh, in order to sate the, the mob violence that was brewing around the man Jesus of Nazareth, ordered him to be crucified. The, the accusation of, that, that led to this crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved in the Roman Empire. Uh, you could not crucify Roman citizens. You crucified rebels, you crucified slaves, but this 
was a particularly abhorrent method of execution, and it was usually reserved, again, for rebels or slaves because we want to make, we, we uh, being the Roman Empire, wanted to make a, a very brutal example of people that would rebel. And when Jesus of Nazareth was executed, the official claim against him by the state was, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So he was being executed for sedition. And his execution took place most likely on a, on a Friday afternoon uh, before, the, uh, before the Pesach, the Jewish Passover. And so that's the, that's the historical nature of what happened at this event. When, when we talk about the cross, we're not, we are referencing that historical event. That's a very important event. And again, the, the historical truthfulness of that event is of vital importance to, to our faith. If that event didn't happen, if, if people got together and cooked up a story and made that up, then our entire faith has, has no basis. So the historical verifiability of that event is of vital importance. The, the spiritual nature of what happened there. Right? This man, historically, we can see this man was innocent of the charges placed against him. Historically, there, there's no record of this man ever doing anything wrong whatsoever. Now, when we talk about the cross, we're talking about the spiritual events that occurred while he was being beaten, uh, force marched from the city, and then executed by being nailed to, uh, nailed to a cross. Uh, the, the religious and moral significance of what happened there is what we talk about when we talk about the cross. What actually occurred in addition to the historical and physical things? Have I answered your question? Yes. Sermon's done. <laughs> that, that's, that's the next part of sermon too, yeah. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> um, yes, that is true, right? So what happened at the cross before his physical death while he was physically dying? Right, well, the, the, the histories tell us that, uh, that darkness covered the land, right? Because of, because of the nature of Passover, Passover is a, um, uh, based on a lunar calendar, right? The, this, was not, this was not an eclipse. And there is some historical evidence that this darkness that covered the land has also been preserved extra-biblically, historically. But the, what was actually going on there was the sins, or excuse me, let me, 
the just punishment of the sins of all who would believe in this man were being punished right there. He wasn't being punished, at least not justly, for rebelling against Rome. Right? It, was not, it was not a just punishment to say that he was blaspheming because he, didn't, the, he, was, he was accused by the, the Jewish governing body of blasphemy. They did not have the authority to put him to death for that, so they took him to the Romans, who did have the authority. The Romans didn't care about a matter of Jewish law. But so the Romans took that and said, yeah, we'll, we'll punish him because he said he was the king of the Jews. No problem. We can execute people for that. Right? And the mob that wanted him executed routinely, had, it, one of the things they were screaming is, we have no king but Caesar. This is recorded in the historical documents. But so the, the spiritual significance of what happened there was the just punishment Right, because, again, we, we've agreed. We, we talked sin. A good, God, a good God demands justice. That's part of his nature. We talked about justice. There's the justice. When we talk about the cross, we are talking about the justice for the sins that I've committed, that you've committed, that everyone who would choose to believe in the person and the work of Christ has committed. They were punished at, at the crucifixion. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that, that's correct. Keeping the word there is important, offered. Right? And a number of times, again, the historical record shows us, he said that no one's taking his life from him, but he lays it down willingly. Again, at, at any point in time, he could have spoken up and stopped what was going on. He chose not to. It's also important to, as, as a side note, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but one of the reasons that Jesus was silent in his trial in the events leading up to his crucifixion is that he was a perfect representative of us, of mankind, the perfect representative. And at the judgment, at the final judgment, there's going to be a great quiet, there's going to be a great hush on behalf of mankind. Because we won't have those, unfortunately, those who are who are not found in the Lamb's Book of Life will have nothing to say. There will be books opened. The dead will be judged based on, their, based on their deeds. And there won't be an appeal. There won't be an argument. There will simply be judgment. And because Yeshua ben Yosef was our perfect representative, when he was doing the work that, that rightly should have been done by us. When he was bearing our sins, he was silent, right? as we should be. When, when, when charges are read against us, we should be silent, because there's no argument.
Yeah. I really, I really can't add anything to that. It is, it is hard for us to fathom. Right? But that's the nature. When, when we talk about the cross, when we say what happened, that Friday mid-morning and afternoon when that man was executed, what happened there? Right? What happened there was the legitimate punishment of sins. I'd like to I'll spend just a little bit of time uh, supporting that. Open, open your Bibles, please, to uh, Micah. Micah the prophet. Micah 7, verses 16 through 20. Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter 7, verses 16 through 20. Starting in verse 16. The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They will put their hands over their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They will lick the dust like a serpent. They will crawl from their holes like the snakes of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Okay, I want you to note two things in this passage. First of all, the prophet sees a day coming when sins will be forgiven. Right, now, the forgiving of sins, the mercy that the prophet talks about here, we now know how that was accomplished. That was accomplished because Yeshua took those sins upon himself. That's how this happened. Also, I want you to note that the prophet sees here nation, the nations gathering in. This is, this is not just, just something done on behalf of Israel. The nations are gathered in for this forgiveness. Um, also, right, no, uh, no discussion of um, the work of Christ would be complete without a reference to the servant song. So please open to Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah, we'll start in Isaiah 52. Start in Isaiah 52, verse 13, and we'll read through uh, Isaiah 53, 12. You guys already know what this is, but the more things go without saying, the more they need to be said, right? Notice that this was said... 700 years before, roughly 700 years before uh, the events that we've just talked about, the events at the, the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He will be exalted and extolled and be very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths at him, for what they had not been told they shall see, and what they had not heard they will consider. 
Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we would desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Pay attention. Here it comes. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin... He will see his seed and prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That, my friends, is the gospel according to Isaiah. Again, written seven, roughly 700 years before what took place at that outcropping of rock outside the ancient city of Jerusalem. The, uh, the inhabitants of the city called it Golgotha place of the skull, we call it Calvary, place of the cross. And that, at that time, when darkness was covering the land, what happened, this was, this was invisible to, this was something happening in the heavenly places, it was something happening in a spiritual way, it was not visible to humans besides what they could see of this man being crucified. But what happened is the father was pouring his just wrath. And it, again, it was just. We all know that we have done things wrong. We all know that we deserve to be punished if we're honest with ourselves. The just wrath of the father was poured on the son. The son was not abused he, he was abused, but he was not being abused by the Father. He was doing what he came to do. He was, he was fulfilling the work of Christ. That's what happened at the cross. There, 
and there is a very beautiful picture. The way it's described is uh, really quite amazing, the way it's kind of spiritually described for us. Do me a favor, open now to the book of Colossians. Colossians, the second chapter of Colossians. Colossians 2, we'll start in verse 1, we'll go through uh, verse 15. Sometimes I want to just read brief little snippets and I open up and I find out that no, we need to read the whole thing. So uh, we're going to read a big chunk of uh, Colossians, which is a fairly short letter in and of itself. Colossians 2, 1 through 15, for I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and as many have not seen my face in the flesh. This is Paul writing to this church in Colossae. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining all riches of the fullness of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So therefore... Excuse me, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made you alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having, pay attention, nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. All right, Colossians. So, again, you've seen, you've seen some of the old artwork of the crucifixion and over 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 Jesus is a little sign that says I N R I that's a that's a Latin abbreviation for the charge the official charge that was leveled against this man it says Iusus Nazariutum Rex Iudeum right, for those of you whose uh, Atenlay is a little rusty that means uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. All right, that was, that was the titleist, the sign that was uh, placed above him so that people could know that the, the government of Rome was just. It was executing a man found guilty of sedition. He said he was the king of the Jews. So, as Paul says here in Colossians, Something else was also happening. 
Right? There, there was also there was a, a certificate of our crimes that were there, that were there being nailed to that cross. Right? The cer certificate of our crimes are, are the moral crimes that you and I have committed. We know we've committed them. We can look in, inside ourselves and see times that we've violated Torah, see times that we've been cruel to people. I started off today talking about uh, me being cruel to someone else. And I can, I can be nasty to people. Right? So these things happen. We know they happen. All those things, for everyone who would accept the person and the work of Christ, were there, and they were punished as they should be punished because they were bad. And they were punished by being nailed to that cross. Right, that's, that's what Paul is telling you right here. That's what happened. So again, we can see the, or the, the people there. There were eyewitnesses there. We have their accounts. Those people saw a man nailed to the cross. What they did not see, but what was very really there, and what that man, the man Jesus of Nazareth, was bearing was the just punishment of these sins. Now, in the ancient world, there were, there were various ways to record a, a, a statement of debt, a receipt of, of the borrowed money, a, a debt, Thing, things a handwriting of things against you. One of the ways that these things were recorded was it was written on what's called an ostracon, a piece of broken pottery. Right? So you borrow money from me, I give you a, I give you a uh, basically a receipt. Interestingly enough, the, that, that ostracon, that's where we get the word ostracize. In the, uh, in the ancient Greek city-states, you know, I'd write James's name on this thing and I'd hand it to him and that means he's banished. He's been ostracized. Now, there, there was also, you know, if, if James owes me money, I'd say, okay, James, you owe me such and such money, and I'd, you know, I'd have this, this ostracon. And uh, one of the ways that you'd cancel this debt is you take that ostracon, and appropriately enough, you take a nail, and you drive it through it, you break it. That's what happened at the cross, right? There were nails driven through that certificate of debt, the, the certificate of all of the sins, again, of everyone who makes the choice to accept the person and the work of Christ. Right? There's, a, there's another way that, uh, that this, this debt was canceled. You could write, you know, the, the Greek word uh, canceled uh, across this debt. Right? And again, we do things like that today. Uh, you, can, you can get a bill, you go pay your bill, someone gets a rubber stamp, it says paid. Right? This word for canceled is a Greek word, tetelestai. Interestingly enough, this, uh, this word shows up uh, in the Gospels, in the, these early eyewitness accounts of what happened. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Again, this certificate of debt. We take this certificate of debt, if it's been paid, you know, if it's, a, if it's a piece of pottery, right, we drive a nail through it. 
paid, done. Uh, another way to, to say that this debt has been paid, that the debt has been canceled, is to write the word tetelestai across it. We have this, this is um, historically, we have documents, bill, bills of sale, bills of debt that have the word tetelestai written across them. It's an ancient Greek word, and that word shows up uh, John, uh, John 19. Turn with me to John 19. Verses 28. We'll start in verse 28. John 19, 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. A vessel full of sour wine was sitting there. They filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it in his mouth. When he'd received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Right? He knew that all things were done. That word there that we translate as it is finished is the last word, at least that this witness describes as coming from his mouth before he died, and that is the word tetelestai. Paid in full. That's what happened at the cross. When we talk about the cross, we are talking about the exchange. The exchange made between really the second person of the Trinity and the first person. The first person's rightful anger and displeasure at our sins put on the second person of the Trinity. We can also think about the exchange that he made with us, our sin, his goodness. That's what we talk about when we talk about the cross. Yes, ma'am. That's a very good point. The, the point was made that if you sell something to someone else, and that person paid for it, it's no longer yours. Jesus of Nazareth, and that, that's very correct. Jesus of Nazareth bought our debt. It's now his. That's what happened at the cross. And arguably, the, I mean, he, the man was certainly dead, but arguably the cross doesn't really take his life. He simply has met his goal, and he just dismisses his spirit. And before he goes, the last thing that he says is it is finished. To tell us die. Yes, ma'am. I'd have to study. I can't. Doreen's question was, uh, is, there, is there a potential parallel in, in uh, the Levitical, in one of the Levitical celebrations of, of one of the uh, Moedim? I, I think it very likely that there is, but I, I would have to study before I cite something specifically. It's a good question. Thank you. Yes. 
So on, specifically on Pesach. Okay, interesting. I, yeah, let me, someone study that and let me know, because I'd like to know. It probably comes from somewhere, you know, I don't know, Tractate Moedim or something like that. But, yeah, I'd like to know how we, how we know that, because that's certainly interesting for what we're saying. Uh, and very appropriate that he's saying it when he's conducting his work on Passover. All right, turn with me to, uh, what's that? Another question? If someone, yes, sir. Exactly. Yes, that is, that is exactly correct in, in every detail. There, yeah, there, there, is, there is no justice in that system. And that's one of the reasons that we can reject that worldview. Because it allows those sins to continue in perpetuity. So... I, I think everyone, thank you for speaking loud, loudly, Jonathan. I think everyone heard that. But yeah, the point is that, yeah, to come, as Jonathan said, for those of you that couldn't hear, there is, there is justice. When, when we talk about the cross, when you talk about the work of Christ, there is justice. For every sin of every person who would put that, who would allow Christ to take that sin. And it was beautifully said, thank you. I couldn't have said it better. I wish I would have said it to that man 10 or 15 years ago. Maybe that would have, uh, maybe I could have uh, led, him to, uh, led him to Messiah instead of him trying to lead me uh, towards Islam. Open with me uh, really quickly. So what, we, we should respond to this. If, if that debt has been put on someone else, this is how we should respond. And Paul quotes this as well. So uh, open with me to Psalm 32. We're going to read the first part of it and we're going to read the last part of it. Psalm 32. We're going to read Psalm 32 verses 1 and 2 and then 10 and 11. 
a psalm of David, a contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Skipping down to verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's, uh, that should be our response at the cross. Again, we, we talk about the cross. What we're talking about is, is the completed work of Christ with regard to the sin of everyone who would believe. Um, I, I don't really have time to, there, there are a lot of good things we want to say. Some people will look at the various uh, historical accounts and say, well, they don't line up. Right? They do. If, if I'm Jesus of Nazareth and I say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I say it is finished and then I die. If one person only records me saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then records my death. The other person records me saying it's finished and then records my death. There's no contradiction here. Right, they're just different eyewitnesses noting different things. Right, quick apologetic there. Uh, also, the, uh, the, the work of the cross is the accomplished work of Christ even for those who don't exactly know what was going on there. Okay, there are righteous pagans, uh, people, people like Job, who as far as we know, was, was not Jewish, had no, uh, no um, understanding necessarily of the work of Christ. Those people right, are forgiven in the same way. Right? There, there is no sin that will be forgiven mankind that was not punished at the cross, including the sins of those that don't know that that's how it's working. Right? That's, that's a, a broader topic that I'll potentially cover later, but... Don't worry about the righteous pagans. Don't worry about people like that. They are safe in the arms of Jesus, just, just like you and I are. They just don't know it until they die. All right. I'm going to go through this. That's, that's the cross. Thank you for uh, your participation thus far. I encourage your participation to continue. I am going to go through this next part quickly, the last part of Principia Theologia. This is going to be part six. As, uh, as some of you know, I need to wrap this up, and um, this, will be, this will be the last you see of me for a while. So uh, we're smashing two parts of Principia Theologia together. So this is going to be part six. Part six is the resurrection. And I'll go as quickly as time permits. That doesn't mean I don't want the good questions that we've had in participation. I do. We've got, we've got time. We'll make it work. Plenty of time. Okay, the resurrection. First of all, I want to talk about the resurrection of Christ. The absolute most important thing. Paul talks about the resurrection. He says, I gave you what I received as a first importance. And it is first importance. He then goes on to say that if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile. Waste of time. And that is true. 
everything we're doing here is a huge waste of time if Jesus of Nazareth did not walk out of that tomb on the third day bodily. We're not talking about some sort of, oh, well, his spirit's still here with us. No. Physical resurrection. Okay. Reminder. Nothing thus far, and there, there will be nothing that is asked to be accepted on blind faith. That's not how we operate. That's not how this worldview operates. We have good evidence for this. I want to go through some of the basic historical facts. These are facts that all scholars, Christian, non-Christian of some sort of theistic, atheist, skeptical, what have you. This is good history, and these are historical facts that, uh, that, that demand that we do something with them. We can't just look at these historical facts and say, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, whatever. So, the basic historical facts. Here they are. The cross produced a dead body. Dead, dead, dead. Romans knew how to execute people. Very well, yes. They, dead. Cross produced a dead body. Okay, there, there, is, there is no historical question that the man Jesus of Nazareth existed and that he was executed by crucifixion. The cross produced a dead body. Fact. The tomb contained no body. If it did, all these Jesus followers running around talking about a resurrection, it would have been easy to refute. People knew where the man was buried, go open the tomb, drag out his bones and show everyone these are the bones of Jesus of Nazareth. And yet this never happened. The tomb contained no body. Third fact, historical fact that is not questioned historically. The disciples and noted skeptics saw some body. The, the historical documents are full of references to a number of witnesses who saw, touched, and ate with a risen man who still had holes in him but whose body appeared to be working not only perfectly as physical bodies work, but appeared to have capabilities beyond what we understand to be the physical. These are facts. They are, they, are as, they are every bit the good historical fact that if I tell you that it is a fact that the English and the Welshmen, always have to include the Welshmen, the Georges are Welsh, the English and the Welshmen shot longbows at the French at Agincourt. Historical fact, no one questions it. It's written down, it's good history, we know that it happened. What's the logical conclusion? That the man rose from the dead. There are, are there conclusions that people have posited and they fail. Some people say, well, the, the cross didn't really produce a dead body. Jesus fainted on the cross, they took him down, they put him in a tomb, and three days later he got up and walked out. But crucified people don't do that. He would have been incapable of physically doing that. Some people say that the, the disciples and these noted skeptics like James and Paul had hallucinations. Well, here's the problem. People don't share hallucinations. Hallucinations is when one person loses track with reality. Other people don't lose track with reality in the same way. That doesn't happen. Not a hallucination. Not a swoon. 
dead man comes back from the dead, raised by the power of God. Why, why is this important? First of all, it's important because it gives a, a divine stamp of approval on the person and the work and the claims of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? If a guy comes back from the dead, then he, he gets to claim to be God. I'm okay with that. All right, if a guy comes back from the dead and he says something like, the scripture cannot be broken, I'm okay with that. Uh, good, scripture can't be broken. Something amazing occurred here. Right, also, notice that this is where we, we can kind of start to get philosophical again. Because he came back from the dead, because he, he came back from the dead and makes the claim to be alive forever, now we can do things that have ultimate meaning. Right? At, my, at my poorhouse last night, uh, Jonathan was talking about uh, things having ultimate meaning, things mattering in eternity. That's not consistent with some of these other worldviews that we've been talking about. Things don't matter in eternity if some of these other worldviews are right. But if we're right, things do matter. They have ultimate meaning. They matter eternally. And this resurrection from the dead is the beginning proof of this. All right. Now, I'm going to take a brief dive into this because now we're going to talk about, right, this has, been, this has been a new members class and very little of the stuff that we've been saying thus far has been specifically about the practice of Messianic Judaism. All right, we've talked about things that everyone in the orthodox body of Messiah would, would agree with these things. Everyone would, would agree that these things are true. Now, we're going to dive specifically in, briefly, on why we think that we're doing it right. Specifically, how does the practice of Torah comport with the resurrection? All right? Don't you know you're crucifying Jesus all over again? All right, don't you know that the, the, the Torah is the, the record of wrongs that was crucified to the cross with Jesus? You just read Colossians. Can't you read? All right. We're going to take a brief moment to dispel any of these concerns. Okay, first of all, why, why do we do some of the things that we do? Why are we a messianic synagogue? Why do we, uh, why do we teach Torah here? Uh, oh, I, will, I will answer that very briefly. Open with me, please, to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. And again, everyone knows what's coming. You guys have heard this before. I will explain. Jeremiah 31, we'll start in verse 31 and go through verse 37. Here we go. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, 
Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea, its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will cast off the seed of Israel for all the things that they have done, says the Lord. All right, the words of the true and living God. All right, this, this is the description of the new covenant. All right, he talks about the new covenant. When our master makes a reference to the new covenant, he's referencing this, this document. Okay, first of all, right, and, and the document is, is laid out very clearly. Right, it's a contract, it's a covenant. With whom is the covenant made? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. So if you're not part of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, guess what? The new covenant is not made with you. Well, that's a problem. It's not a problem if you're, if you're a Gentile, like I am, who's been grafted on to the commonwealth of Israel. No problem. All right. Also note that he is going to put his Torah, the Hebrew word there is Torah, in their minds, write it on their hearts. Okay, there's nothing in the new covenant that somehow displaces Torah. If you think that Torah is the old covenant, no, Torah is not the old covenant. Torah is part of the old covenant that they broke. Torah is also part of the new covenant. It's right there. And then he reiterates, yeah, this is, gonna, this is a covenant with the house of Israel. Oh, yeah, and the very laws of physics are going to have to change before I throw, throw the house of Israel away because of their sins. All right? Finally, note, this is the important part, I will forgive their iniquity and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Okay? And the only way that that happens is because that iniquity has been punished at the cross. Right. So we view, we view the application of Torah in this synagogue and in the Messianic movement, we view the application of Torah as perfectly consistent with kingdom living under the new covenant. Okay? If, if, question. Um, yeah, uh, no, no. The, the old covenant was broken. There, needs to, there needed to be a new covenant. Okay, the, the, everyone who... There, there's the, the covenant that is in effect by which your sins are forgiven is the new covenant. It's this new covenant that's referenced here. All right, the... That and Torah, the, the practice of Torah is part of that new covenant... He said he'd write it on our mind, write it on our hearts. So there's nothing wrong. There, some of our Christian brethren believe that somehow Torah has been removed from the new covenant. Right? That the new covenant replaces Torah. 
that Torah is the Old Covenant. Those things are incorrect. And it's very clear from the text that Torah and the practice of Torah is part of the New Covenant. So that's why, right, that's why, you know, at the, at the Jerusalem Council, we've got Paul talking about, uh, what do we need to do with Gentiles coming into synagogue? Peter stands up and talks for a while, and then James, who seems to be the president of the Jerusalem Council, stands up and says there are four things that we absolutely cannot permit in the synagogue. And then he says, for Moses has his teacher in every synagogue. Right? There, there is nothing inconsistent with at least an attempt at a Torah-observant lifestyle under the New Covenant. Indeed, it appears to be the best expression of kingdom living in the New Covenant. It's, it's not a huge deal. It's, to me, it seems a fairly minor deal, a fairly minor part. And to me, it, the only reason that we argue it is because there are other people arguing against it. Right? I mean, if our Lutheran friends down the street tell me that triangles have more than three sides, I'm going to argue against them. Not because the nature of a triangle is super important, but because they're wrong. And as part of a new members class, there are, there are a lot of things that we do culturally that we do for religious reasons because, because of this. New covenant? Oh you're, oh, you're part of the new covenant. That's great. So you must have the Torah written on your heart. Well, how, how, do, you, how do you walk that out in your real life? Right? Well, that's what it says. So this, this observance of, of Christianity, and that's what we are, right? We're, we're, we're messianic Jews, but from a doctrinal perspective, we are, we are Christians. We believe in Christ, Messiah. We want to use Hebrew terminology instead of Greek terminology, whatever, potato, potato. All right, but it's, it's a reasonable question. is why do we do these things? We haven't talked a lot about it in this, which is supposed to be a new member's class. So there you go. No problem. I'm, I'm, glad, I could, I'm glad I could clear it up. Right? So new covenant, yes, inaugurated by Jesus, yes, does not include Torah. All right, Trump, wrong. Okay, it does include Torah. It specifically says it includes Torah. So that's why we do what we do. Um, I want to I wanna back it up one more time because maybe, you know, maybe, maybe Jeremiah didn't say enough. Let's, let's find out what Jesus said. Let's find out what the, the, the lover of your soul thinks. Open up to Matthew. Matthew 5. And again, they're rolling their eyes. Yeah, we know. We've heard this before. Matthew 5. Verse 17 is where we'll start, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think, this is a commandment, you ready? Jesus is dishing out commands. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so 
shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Right, so those, those are the words of your Lord and your Savior. Right, the, and so anytime we see something where, where yes, we're, we understand that Torah observance is not a matter of salvation. It isn't. We don't teach that here, and we need to be very clear. Salvation is only found in the person and the work of Messiah, not in your Torah observance. Your Torah observance is something you do because it's been written on your heart, and you want to do the things that are written on your heart. And again, not really a huge deal. The only reason we argue it is because a lot of people in the church argue against it, and we think wrongly so. Fair enough? I, I truly, truly look forward to the day that I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And he has said right here that for matters of Torah observance, he will call me great. And I want God to call me great. That sounds amazing. That will be the pinnacle of my existence. And it can be the pinnacle of yours too. Right? Every, everyone who does these righteous deeds, right, there, there's going to be a reward for acts of Torah. And, and this is going to be something that when the books are opened, right, uh, he will be able to look at us and say, wow, you did this. This glorified me. That's going to be amazing. Also, just to encourage you in your studies, the word, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill, that word there for fulfill can also be translated as inaugurate. If you look in the Septuagint, right, remember the Septuagint is the, the Greek Old Testament. I don't like the term Old Testament, but we're going to use it here. The Greek, old, the Greek copy of the Hebrew Scriptures. A, a superlative Greek translation worked on by a number of Hebrew scholars, every time that that word shows up in the Septuagint, it's translated as inaugurate. I came to, not to destroy, but to inaugurate, to really start this off. And you know the way they inaugurated things? They did it with a blood sacrifice. That's interesting. Anyways, okay, enough said. That, if, if you're a member here, the, the leadership of this synagogue will strive to fulfill what's written in the book of Acts that Moses has his teacher in every synagogue. We will encourage works of Torah. We do not think that anything in the Torah ha has, been, uh, has been abrogated. Right? There are some things that we cannot do because there's no temple. Fine. Those things did not save people back in the day. That's not true. Right. Every sin was, was every, every sin of every believer, whether this person knew what he was believing or not, was dealt with in the person and the work of Christ. That's how this works. We believe that the, uh, an appropriate, that the appropriate expression of worship is through acts of Torah. That's what we teach at the synagogue. We think that is the most appropriate application of this. That's why we're Messianic Jews and not, I don't know, I, I guess I'd be a Seventh-day Lutheran or something. That's a horse of a different color. Anyways, brief excursus. Um, what? Are, are we going too long? We have time. There's a miracle that's happening. 
All right. Now, the as as a teaching point regarding items of regarding items of Torah. One of the items of Torah that uh, you know you, you've heard that uh, Jews are the Democratic Party with strange holidays. All right. I want to talk about those strange holidays. The uh, the strange holidays. When we talk about what happened at the cross, we understand the observance of Yom Kippur more so than does anyone else. Because he was afflicted for our transgressions. And one day a year, we are called upon to remember that affliction and to practice in a way that affliction in ourselves. We afflict ourselves on Yom Kippur. We... Right? And, and just as a note, this is going to be very politically incorrect. Say it, if, if you repeat it to someone, you're welcome to do so, but say it with love and true concern. Uh, we are the appropriate uh, descendants of, of the, the temple cult of Judaism right? and not modern-day rabbinic Jews. Why? Because the ultimate fulfillment of everything in the Hebrew Scriptures was Jesus of Nazareth. And while it's been said, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, that there can be two Jews and three opinions, the rabbis are of a marked agreement that he is not the Messiah. And we know that he is. Right? And so we need to have a love reaching out to these people who are lost, who have lost the way, our Messiah, okay, especially, I'm, I'm speaking as a Gentile, our Messiah was their Messiah first. Our king is the rightful king of Israel. He is a descendant of David. He has the right to sit on that throne. So reach out to them lovingly and patiently. But what they're doing is not a legitimate representation of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I know it's politically incorrect, so be careful in the way that you say it, but speak firmly because it's true. Now, the, uh, right, the, um, so we've talked about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a picture of what happened at the cross. We can practice that, and all of our Christian brethren should. Uh, Pesach. Pesach is also a picture of what happened at the cross. And our Messiah, when he was celebrating the Pesach, he said, do this in remembrance of when the people came out of Egypt. Oh, wait a second. No, that's not what he said. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Okay, the, the Pesach is more real for us than it is for anyone who doesn't know Messiah. Okay, Sukkot. Sukkot has always long been considered a, a holiday not only for the Jews, but a holiday for the nations, because it's on Sukkot, that holiday for the nations, when a, a total of uh, 70, 70, I believe, bulls are sacrificed, right? And there were 70 nations that were divided at uh, Babel, right? Sukkot is more powerful for us because we know that God physically dwelt with us. Right, that tabernacle 
that, that human body that he put on to be with us, we understand that picture more than anyone else does. Right? That's why these things are so valuable. That's why we should do them. We shouldn't just, we shouldn't just look at them and, oh, hey, that's, that's academically interesting. No, we should truly love the Moradim. Question, what happens next? Thus far, thus far we've talked about We've been talking about history, everything important that happened historically. Now we're going to talk about everything important that happens in the future. Okay? Keep in mind, I, I want you to uh, keep in mind that these worldviews, these various different worldviews we've been talking about, none of them leave any doubt as to what happens in the future. Uh, we talked about monism, it's more of an Eastern mindset. That there is, that, that all that really exists is one mind, one universal mind. You're just a little piece of that universal mind that's broken off somehow. You need to achieve enlightenment. And when you achieve enlightenment, like a drop of water disappearing in the ocean, you're going to go back to the universal mind. That's what monism, some forms of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, teaches is going to happen in the future. You're going to go back to the universal mind. No question, no doubt. Uh, materialistic naturalism. Some people would call that atheism. They're usually synonymous. Uh, again, we were, I, I had a, a wonderful poorhouse last night. Uh, James was there. He mentioned that he was a big Carl Sagan fan when he was younger. Right? And there's all sorts of things to like about Carl Sagan. Uh, one thing about Carl Sagan that he, I'm, I'm showing my age now, but he's famous for his Cosmos series. And it starts with uh, the words, I think I'm quoting this properly, the cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. Right? Now notice, for a scientist, that's an amazingly philosophical statement. That's not a statement that science teaches us. That's a statement inherently based on philosophy. But it represents the worldview of naturalistic materialism which says that all that exists are space, time, matter, and energy and the laws that govern them. This worldview also tells us what will happen in the future. In the future, the universe will experience what's called a heat death. The universe, which is a closed system, and there's nothing outside of it, because the cosmos is all that exists, or ever was, or ever will be. There's nothing to inject energy or useful work into the universe. The universe will experience a heat death. The, the entropy in the universe will increase to a maximum. The universe will be nothing but a homogenous, dark, cold soup. It's called the heat death of the universe. And that's what happens. And if all that exists is space, time, matter, and energy and the laws that govern them, one of the laws that governs the universe is the second law of thermodynamics, and that tells us how things will end up. So again, as, uh, as, as Jonathan said, if that's correct... Nothing can have ultimate value. Because I'm telling you how it will end. Scientifically, there's no question that that is how it will end. If there's nothing outside the universe. Now, if there's a good God outside the universe who created it and can put energy into it at will, that's not necessarily true. Anyways, worldview note. Uh, various different forms of the theistic worldview have... You know, we'll, we'll tell you how things are going to end up. 
this is from, from our standpoint, again, some of the things that we do as far as Torah observance give us a clue of how this world is going to end up. We celebrate the Feast of the First Fruits. And this book tells us, this book tells us that the first fruits from the dead, who's that? Well, the first fruits from the dead is our master, Jesus of Nazareth. And because there's first fruits, right, we also expect other things to come out of it. We, we expect, you know, we, that every one of us is going to eventually be like him. We will be, we will be resurrected. There's, uh, there's Shavuot that we celebrate. One of the things we celebrate happening at Shavuot was the outpouring of the Spirit. And that will be true in an even greater way in the future, which is one of the reasons that we think that the celebration of these Moedim are important because we are acting out in our lives things that we expect to happen. We have a Feast of Trumpets. Well, glory be, the Master is returning with the sound of a trumpet and the shout of the Archangel. We have Shemini Atzeret, right? We, we don't even know what that thing is, but it adds an eighth day to the seven days of the celebration, right? And that eighth day, that, the number eight seems to indicate eternity in the scriptures. Right? And so we expect these things to continue in eternity. Finally, we celebrate Shabbat, Sabbath. There, there are two things. There are two forms of the commandment to celebrate the Sabbath. One of them says you will keep the Sabbath because, and basically the commandment says God kept the Sabbath from creation. Another form of the commandment says you will keep the Sabbath because God redeemed you from slavery in Egypt, in the house of bondage. Both of those are correct. Right? The Sabbath is a reminder of creation and of redemption. Creation is going to be a complete work. It will be done the way God originally wanted it. He will make it perfect. Until that day, we celebrate the Sabbath. When that day finally comes, we will have nothing but Sabbath. We will have nothing but rest. We will truly enter the Sabbath rest that was designed for us from the foundation of the world. So creation will be made perfect. It's one of the things we celebrate on the Sabbath. Another thing we celebrate on the Sabbath is our redemption. Our redemption is a completed work. But, but our redemption will physically be complete when we are raised perfect in perfection and when we are with our master and he is reigning and we are with him. Uh, this, will be, uh, this will be the world that we've always wanted. This will be a world where there is perfect justice, for, uh, for everything that has ever been, been done wrong, there will be perfect justice. And for everything that, uh, that we've done wrong, there will be perfect mercy. There's, uh, that day is coming. Let me, let me tell you what that day looks like. And we'll finish. Uh, turn, turn with me to uh, the 21st chapter, please, of John's Revelation. 
Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. He will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That's what it's going to be like. Right, this, is, this is going to happen. We, we've talked about everything historical up till now. This is something to happen in the future. This book tells us about it. It comes along with a judgment. Right? I mentioned that there's going to be perfect justice. God misses nothing. There will be a day when books are going to be opened. And, and this book tells us that the dead are judged based on their works. There's going to be another book opened. And I'm... I'm uh, pretty much quoting the words of uh, David Pawson, who is, uh, or was a uh, Welsh, again, uh, the Georges are originally from Wales. He might be a distant relative. Welsh uh, preacher. He's uh, since gone to be with the Lord. But uh, he makes the point, and it's very well said, that on that day there's going to be another book opened. It's called Sefer Chai, Book of Life. And that book is a book about Jesus and his works. And those of us who trust in the person and the work of Christ can be judged based on what's written in that book. And that book is uh, a book that uh, we're going to get perfect mercy. Mercy for everything we've ever done wrong. And we will be able to live with him, right? As, as you've heard, the dwelling of God will be with men in a world that we've always wanted. That's what comes next. This, uh, this is the conclusion of Principia Theologia. I thank you for what over the last roughly month has been your time and kind attention. I know that this has gone uh, quite long. We mashed two things together. Uh, this, is, this is our faith. This is the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Um, this, is, this is a call to those who uh, are, if you're thinking about becoming a member of the synagogue, this is what we believe and we, we want you to join with us. This is, this is a worldview that, uh, that, that truly reflects reality. It acknowledges the, the reality of the things that we see. It re acknowledges the reality of the, the morality that we understand. It is, it, it seems to us to be true because it comports with reality. Uh, it, it does not require blind faith. It requires interpre interpreting facts in, in really what is the most likely explanation of these facts, a model that is consistent with the facts. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it. 
those who support it are happy. All of its ways are pleasantness. All of its paths are peace. We love you guys, and thank you for being here.